2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And, and let, me, let me set this up for you this morning, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This passage, I, I know I say this sometimes, and I th- you know, you're like, oh man, you think every passage is hard. Well, a lot of them are. This passage, this passage is so hard this morning. And I'll, let me tell you why this passage is hard this morning. Paul's going to say a thing in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He's going to say this. Hey, Thessalonians, I'm writing to you because you are confused. You've been deceived. You've you're, you, um, you, 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 you gotten all, all shook up about some false teaching that came your way. I want you to remember what I told you. And then Paul's going to build upon what it is he told them. Now, here's the thing. We don't know what he told them. Now, it may be some what he's referring to that was in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and certainly that means that. But there is a body of content, some information, part of that conversation we didn't overhear. And so it's like coming in at the end of a conversation where you're listening to two people talk and you're trying to make sense of what it, okay, what was it that was said before this? And so we need, you know, we're looking for context clues. We're trying to make sense of some things we did not hear. And that's okay. That's by design. This is how the Holy Spirit meant for it to be. But I say that to say, we just want to be careful when we read this passage. We, we want to be not dogmatic, we want to be as accurate as we can. We'll say, okay, this is what we know that it's saying, and these are some things we're unsure about what it's saying. Now, with all that said, here's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let me just read a few verses, and we'll get into it. He says this, Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now, stop right there for a second. Let's understand what's going on. The Thessalonians are worried. They've been stirred up. Their minds are shaken. And so the question, why? Why are they shooken up? Well, verse 1 concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. When Paul says that language, he says it also in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. What he's talking about is he's talking about the rapture of the church. That's what he wrote about in 1 Thessalonians 4. Uh, We who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. The Lord will descend from heaven with a cry of command of the archangel, the voice of the archangel, the sound of the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are left alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds. To meet the Lord in the air. So, they're going through some hard times. This is the, the Thessalonians are. Chad talked about that last week. There's persecution. There's afflictions they were enduring. Very real, very hard times. And they were thinking 
because of the false teaching and the conspiracies and of all the Facebook posts they were reading, that these hard times meant that they were already in the day of the Lord. Okay, verse 1, the coming of the Lord. Verse 2, Paul says, but somehow you think you've been misled to think you're in the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord, when you see this, this is a term that's not a one-time event. It's a period of time. It's a series of events. It means the tribulation. It means the final days where mankind rebels against God and all the things of God. But where the world rises up in all of its fury and rebellion against God and then is finally judged. The judgment comes at the end of that tribulation. And 1 Thessalonians 5, we looked at it a few weeks ago before Easter. You, what describes that are, you know, sudden destruction, labor pains, nobody escapes, all that, sin boils over, judgment comes. But Paul has said, hey, you're not of the darkness, you're of the light. God's not destined us for wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we are to encourage one another. And so here, though, they're not encouraged. They're worried. They're anxious. They're fearful. They thought that they were in the middle of this deal, the day of the Lord. And if that's the case, then, then if that's the case, then they missed the rapture. The cry of the command of the archangel and, and the, the, the trumpet of God had already sounded. Now, here's a reminder to you, all right? The rapture. Remember we said this several weeks ago. It's imminent, which doesn't mean immediate. It just means it's imminent. It could happen at any moment. We should be ready at any time for the return of the Lord. It, there's nothing that, that needs to happen before the, the, the coming of the Lord for the church, for believers. This is the way Paul talks about it. So, verse 1, concerning the rapture. Verse 2, the teaching of the day of the Lord has already come. That's got them all shook up. So, now look at what Paul says in verses 3 and 4. You, you with me so far? This is what's going on. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says this, Let no one deceive you. In any way, for the day of the Lord will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. Now, these are some of the hardest verses and this is where we don't have everything else that Paul was talking about to them. Because in verse 5, he's going to say, don't you remember? I told you all this. And they remembered, and we're like, no, write us another letter. You, you know, that's what we want. But let me say it this way. This is why, however... We say it periodically, if you've been to Discover Bethel in a while, um, I always try to make this point. This is not a text or a doctrine that we divide over here. We don't divide over the rapture of the church, okay? Now, I, 
I have friends, loved ones, family members, they read this text and they are post-tribulation rapture people, meaning they believe that believers will go through the tribulation. I have friends, loved ones, and family members. They are pre-tribulation rapture people. That the church will not go through the tribulation. Interestingly enough, you can argue both of these points from this passage, believe it or not. Now, I also have some friends, and, and let me explain it this way. They see all of this entirely differently. Um, they're kind of like the British people that come to America and always like to say things like, well, yeah, football is my favorite sport, but they're really not talking about football. They're talking about soccer. I have friends like that, all right? Um, they're, they're called amillennialists, and they think football is played with a round ball in your feet. All right. Anyways, uh, so that's what's going on. But what, so what does verses 3 and 4 say? It says, don't be deceived. That's good advice. So stop for a second. Circle that if you want to. Why tell somebody not to be deceived? Well, it's because we are people who are easily deceived. Satan, he's a liar. He is a deceiver. And he has not had to change his strategy throughout all of history. Why? Because it works. Now, don't be deceived. And he says this, for the day will not come. Okay, so he, here he's, he's going to say, the day can't come until these things happen. The day of the Lord. Now, he's not talking about the coming of the Lord, the, the, the rapture. He's talking about the day of the Lord, the, the, um, the, the, the tribulation, this judgment. This can't happen until a couple of prerequisites take place. Remember, Coming of the Lord's imminent, it can happen at any moment. The day of the Lord, well, here are some things that have to happen. By the way, Paul's talking about this. This is a real future historical event. It's not spiritualized. This is real. It's future. It's coming. For the day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. Now, the word rebellion there is the word for apostasy. An, an uprising in open defiance. Now, not an uprising, but the uprising. Apostasy has always been a pastime for humanity, all right? The abandonment of commitment, the abandonment of faith, the refusal to recognize the authority that you once submitted to. I mean, it's, a, it's an act of treason. You know, you denounce your king, the, the, the rebellion against your, uh, your leader. I mean, Judas was an apostate. Now, this he's talking about is more than the minor apostasies that happened. This is the apostasy the rebellion, it's coordinated, it's saturated, it's encompassing. And he goes on, the man of lawlessness is revealed, who, by the way, is also called the son of destruction. Now, who is this? This is the Antichrist 
John talks about him in 1 John chapter 2. Children, it's the last hour, John says. As you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. There's the Antichrist, and then there's all the little minor Antichrists. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. So, before the day of the Lord, you have a couple of things. We've been given the first two right here. In verse 3, we have the rebellion must take place, the rebellion, the apostasy. And the revealing of the man of lawlessness, who's the son of destruction, who you find out is part of the unholy trinity of the beast and the false prophet in in Revelation. Now, what does he do? He does three things. Look at at verse 4 again with me. He opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. Now, imagine this. Imagine what that means. Not just against Yahweh, the one true God, but against every other God. Everything makes himself out to be supreme. Now, everything that Satan does, there's nothing he does that is original. Everything he does, he seeks to mimic who God is. Second thing, look look at what it says. Not only does he oppose and exalt himself against everything, so that, it says, he takes his seat in the temple of God. Now, I'm tempted to want to talk about this for 20 minutes. But there are some people out there that have already changed their clothes waiting to be baptized. So so let me just quickly put this into your mind. What he's talking about is, and, and, and what comes to our mind, is that he would march himself up the temple steps through the outer courts, into the inner courts, into the Holy of Holies, and that he would take his seat on the throne in the midst of the Holy of Holies. Here's the thing, though. And and that's a picture. That that would be a picture. And that's probably something like he would want to do. But the truth is, right now, there's not a throne. There's no temple now. But when there was the temple, there was no throne in the midst of the Holy of Holies. It was the Ark of the Covenant, which sat upon it, the judgment seat, which once a year the high priest would go in and sprinkle the blood. And so what was there was not a person. There wasn't an image of a person. It was a symbol. It was a thing that reminded us we could not have fellowship with God without there being blood shed and sprinkled upon the mercy seat. In some ways, it was us coming to God and God saying and giving us the picture, I'm going to give my life for you. The way you will have fellowship with me, God is saying. Will be that I give my life for you. And the idea here is that when the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction. Comes and takes his seat in the temple of God. 
His message will and only be time for you to give your life for me. He will devour everything. It will be the height of blasphemy. Paralleled only by the next statement where it says, proclaiming himself to be God. In, in, the, in the revelation, John's revelation, you find he wants worship. In fact, he demands worship. Now, let me show you one more thing, and then I'll just have to finish this next week, which is no problem. I got all the time in the world next week. All right. Look at verse 5. He says, do, do you remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And, and you know what's restraining him now? Or the thing that holds him back? You know what's holding him back? So that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. Now, what in the world is Paul talking about here? Here's one thing. The man of lawlessness has not yet been revealed because there is right now something in place that is restraining the spirit of lawlessness, the mystery of lawlessness, and ultimately the revealing of the man of lawlessness. That cannot happen while there is a restraint in place. So the question for us, what is the restraint? There is a thing that is restraining, and then a he that is the restrainer. I will tell you, I have read pages upon pages throughout centuries of believers writing about this, and I can tell you a couple of things. One, there is not a general consensus amongst everybody that is conservative and Bible-believing, and so there are several different ways people look at this. The most compelling of these, I can tell you, is this. The thing that is restraining him now, the thing that holds back the man of lawlessness and the full, unrestrained lawlessness that is to come is the church. And the one who restrains this is the Holy Spirit working through the church. Which leads me to believe of all the options about how Paul puts this together is that it is the rapture of the church, the taking away of the church, and the indwelling spirit of believers that the restraint is out of the way and this mystery of lawlessness, this, this secret lawlessness that's going on under the surface will finally uh, come to the surface and the man of lawlessness will be revealed. But the church will have to be out of the way. The indwelling believers that make up the church, the believers indwelt with the Holy Spirit, when the church is out of the way and the Spirit's ministry through the church 
then that time will come. And that's why Paul's saying, you're worried that you're in the day of the Lord now, because listen, you're going through suffering, it's really real, but let me tell you something, it is not the suffering, it is not unrestrained, it is not the kind of suffering that will be felt, or destruction that will be felt, or evil that will be felt, that's unrestrained while the church is here now. And so the three things that have to happen before the day of the Lord begin. First, the rebellion. Second, the man of lawlessness is revealed. And third, the restraint is removed. When that happens, you know it's the day of the Lord. Verse 8, real quick, the man of, then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. I love that. You don't have that underlined? You can go ahead and do it now. Kill him with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. For the Lord to even show himself means destruction. Paul talks about the breath of his mouth. You go to Revelation 19, John sees it as a sword coming from his mouth, a two-edged sword. But for believers, the word that became flesh, the word that comes to us, the word that we're studying this morning, it's sanctifying, it's, it's cleansing, it can bring us to salvation. But if you are not a believer, if you stand with the lawlessness, the rebellion, then that word, that breath, that sword is a sword of judgment, the wrath of punishment for those that oppose the kingship of God. Now, real quick, let's end here, 9 and 10. Now, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. With all power, all saints' power, and false signs, the pseudo-signs, and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth And so, be saved. I'll pick up here next week, but I just want to say this. It's effective for those who are perishing. He will be effective with those who are perishing. Who's that? Well, it's those that refuse to love the truth. That refuse to be saved. People who've received the knowledge of God's way, but decided they'd have none of it. Do not welcome the truth of the gospel. And despite the fact of the truth, comes to them as the only way that can be saved. They reject it. Let me just say this morning, Have you received the truth of the gospel? I I, I don't know. This passage is so good for me because it brings things that seem very abstract about the future into a concrete reality that Paul is absolutely clear about. This is happening. Jesus is coming back. There is 
a mystery of lawlessness, a movement, a spirit of lawlessness, a spirit of rebellion, a spirit of evil and hatred empowered by Satan that lies just below the surface. And we all feel it, but there's a day when that restraint will be lifted and it will be full-blown. And it will be the most terrible thing the world has ever, ever seen. And yet the way Paul envisions it is the very appearance of Jesus has a destroying end to that lawlessness, that evil. However evil and powerful and horrible and groaning it may seem right now as we live with it just below the surface, the very appearance of Jesus in all of its full-blown revelation Jesus will come in with a breath, blow it away. With the appearance, it will be, it will be destroyed. Because as Paul says, he came to save you. Are you saved? Do you believe? Where are you putting your hope this morning? I invite you, don't... Don't let another day, a moment go by. But you haven't in your heart at least bowed your knee and said, okay. You're the king. You're the king. You're the salvation. I trust in you for my salvation. And the forgiveness of my sins. And the resurrection to eternal life. I invite you to believe that this morning. If you would, would you bow with me? Father, I pray. You do what only you could do. We need your grace and mercy. We always do. Father, I thank you for this passage. Even for all the things you chose not to reveal to us in this passage, you revealed enough to ignite our hope in the very real return of your son, Jesus. And the very real power that just his presence brings to heal everything that's broken. Father, to eliminate everything that's evil. Father, to comfort and to soothe every groaning that we have. And so, Father, this morning I pray you'd, you'd kindle in us that desire that hope, that, that blessed hope of the future to come. And then, Father, we'd leave here glorifying and praising your name. We want to celebrate these baptisms well. They're the, such a great picture of all that you've done for us. Through your son, Jesus, we ask all these things in his name and by the power of your spirit. Amen.